Folks, let's have a prayer. I think we could use that. Lord, we thank you that in the comings and goings and craziness of life that we often create for ourselves, you are still God. Your creation is still intact because you make it so. Your love is never ending. Your call to a life and following Jesus and finding the peace that that brings is always there. And your witness and your prompting, your presence, your power uh, through the work of your spirit is there to encourage us and to guide us, to calm us down when we're too excited, to get us excited when we're too calm, and always to teach us. Lord, we know that every single day we need you. There is no day, there is no moment that we do not need you. Every single moment you offer something to us to, uh, to teach us and to lead us. And so be with us in these moments as we open our hearts and our minds to the renewing and correcting power of your truth. Uh, where we have been blind, where we have been ignorant, where we have been resistant, Lord, open us up and help us see and help us learn and grow so that we may share Jesus' love with other folks. We pray that in his precious name. Amen. Okie dokie. We have a lot of text to work through today, um, but I think we'll be able to do that because even though there's lots of text, the, the messages are, are, in some sense, fairly simple and fairly clear. We are working through the 17th and the beginning of the 18th chapters of Luke. So let's just start reading with the first 10 verses of Luke 17. Jesus said to his disciples, occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to anyone by whom they come. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender, and if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink? Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. Okay, this passage, this section of Luke, is a great illustration of the fact that we need help oftentimes to understand what in the world is going on. Lots of folks sit down and read through scripture and go through something like this and, and some of it makes some sense and then you wonder, well, why does this follow on that and what's going on with all of it? And so this is a great example of, of our need uh, to have the, the wisdom and the education of the history of the church, the teaching uh, of the church. Not because the church has the final word on things, but because we learn from each other and grow from each other. It seems that here that Luke has taken four independent stories or independent sayings and put them all together. 
And uh, there's, no, there's no instruction manual that says, that Luke would say, I've taken these four things and put them together. And there's, there's no cliff notes that say, here's why I did all of this. And so we have to try to figure that out from, from, uh, from the context and from understanding, trying to look deeply at why Luke might put these things together. And, and here's where we are with this. Here's a good way of understanding these four things. Um, Luke is, is, has put together some different things that Jesus taught about how people live together in the community of faith and how people follow the Lord as they do that. And we'll see how that plays itself out. Um, the first thing in verses 1 and 2, uh, Jesus says, uh, is, is warning people who teach or who lead that if they teach and lead incorrectly, if they cause other people to stumble, uh, that, that that's a horrible thing, that it'd be better for you uh, if you would be thrown into the sea than to, to cause someone else to stumble. And uh, from other things that Jesus said, other things that we read in the New Testament, we see a couple of things. Number one, Jesus often speaks in very typical Middle Eastern fashion of exaggerating, right? I don't, we can never say that Jesus wanted to throw somebody into the sea with a millstone hung around their neck. We might want to do that occasionally, but that's obviously not what Jesus is teaching. He's talking here about the necessity, the absolute necessity for leaders and teachers and mentors, those who encourage other people in the faith, maybe new believers or maybe children, they need to do it right or else everybody is messed up. Everybody is misled. Everybody goes astray. And so he says it would be better for the bad teachers, for the bad leaders, just to, to go away, to be put away. Um, than for everybody to be led astray. That seems to be uh, what, what he is talking about here. Um, and then he moves into a conversation about repentance, right? So the church, the community of faith, the people of faith need to have wise, able, faithful leaders, mentors, and teachers. And all of us in some sense serve in that way, right? If you have children, you know, Terry with her grandson. Terry has a huge responsibility to be a magnificent grandmother, which of course she is, right? Or she can lead her grandson astray. Our children, the people who look up to us, new people in the faith, we need to be careful what we teach and what we encourage. And then Luke begins to talk about, or Jesus begins to talk about the problem of repentance, right? Be on your guard if another disciple sins. There's a key right there that Jesus is talking about life in the community of faith. What happens if another person who follows Jesus sins against you? Now, many people on, outside the church point to the church and say the church is full of a bunch of hypocrites, it's full of a bunch of sinners, it's full of a bunch of people who, who are messing up and following God, and they're right. We're all, we're all sinners. We all mess up. And, and uh, we experience that in the life of the church. I, all of you have been around long enough. I can tell by looking at your faces. You've been around long enough in the life of the church to realize that the church is not perfect. The people in the church are not perfect. That's why we're here. We're trying to learn. We're trying to grow. And so sometimes we're going to hurt each other. Sometimes we're going to sin against each other. What do we do about that? Jesus brings up the necessity of repentance. Repentance. We have to be able to admit when we have messed up and understand that we can be forgiven and then continue on. 
the church, I, in, as a pastor, I, have, I learned early on uh, that there's no good reason that the church continues to exist, really, because um, the church is full of fallible people. And, and yet, in our fallibility, we learn to grow, we learn to forgive each other, we learn to be forgiven, and we keep on going. So there, we need to have that. The disciples said, Lord, give us more faith, right? Give us more faith. Obviously, asking Jesus for, for some quality within themselves that would help them to be able to forgive. And Jesus says, all you need is the amount of faith that's, that is represented by a mustard seed, a tiny little seed. And that tells us that, that it is God's power within us, not necessarily the, the ability of our faith, but the ability of God within us that allows us to forgive and to heal and to renew and to keep on going. And so Jesus, again, is teaching us about how we're going to live in relationship to God, in relationship to other people. And then Jesus moves into a conversation about what's going on with slaves and masters. And that can be very, very confusing to people. Number one, in our culture today, we're very hesitant to, to talk about masters and slaves because of the history of this country, because of continuing issues and problems there. And, and, and sometimes we're even perhaps offended that Jesus would talk that way. Well, here's a couple ways of looking at this. Number one, the, the, the institution of slavery existed in Jesus' time, not in the same way that it existed in this country 150 years ago, not in the same way that it exists in some other parts of the world, but, but slaves were common in that time. Typically, Slaves would be, would be people who would have come from some other nation, some other kingdom, some other city uh, that had been conquered, and, and you would take slaves, people to come and serve you. And uh, Jesus is using the, the institution of slavery as an example in our relationship with God. The master controls the slave. God is the one in charge. We are, a better word to use today perhaps, is servants. We are servants of God. And what is Jesus saying here? It's kind of confusing, but what Jesus seems to be saying is a, when a slave does his job, or her job, when a slave does his job, we don't reward the slave. We simply say, you did your job. You did the right thing. Jesus is saying that when we repent and when we forgive, when we encourage and strengthen others, when we lead others appropriately, that that's doing our job as disciples, as followers of God. We sometimes get it very confused in our discipleship, I think, and we think that, you know, I did a good deed today. I should get special recognition and Jesus looks at it as it's, it's, it's a situation where we are meant to do good deeds all the time. That's what we're made for. Doing the right thing, doing the good thing, doing the appropriate and faithful thing should not be remarkable. It should not be lifted up as something special because it should be part and parcel of the daily life of disciples. That's his point in telling this story, and we shouldn't let the, the way that Jesus tells the story get in the way of our understanding what that story is. Does that make sense to you? So that's what's going on with all of this. This whole section, all of these verses teach us about our relationship with God, the nature of that relationship, that God indeed is sovereign over us, and that we are made to live a life that reflects 
our servanthood before God and our servanthood with each other. And in that we are called to forgive, in that we are called to the high responsibility of leading and encouraging each other's inappropriate ways. Think about that for just one more second and then we'll move on. If you understand that your life and your words and your decisions make a difference in what's going on in someone else's life, it changes the way you do things, doesn't it? It changes the way you do things. I know that young parents oftentimes come to me and say, we didn't realize that our child was going to repeat every word we said in front of them. We didn't realize that our children were going to turn out just like us. But you know when, when that happens, you see your children imitating you and doing what you do, and then all of a sudden you decide, well, I better get my act together. And that's a high calling. That's a, a high responsibility. This is, this is important stuff. This is adult level stuff. This is the stuff where it's not just about, you know, I'm so glad Jesus saved me. Let's all feel good and be happy. This is the, the work. This is the discipline. This is the high calling of following Jesus and serving and loving each other. So let's continue on. Let's go to verses 11 to 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, were not 10 made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Okay, here we have a story about Jesus at work in the world and what the business of the gospel is. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. There's a long journey. There's a lot that happens on the road to Jerusalem. And Luke is going to tell us about that. We know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. As Jesus goes from the Galilee, from the Sea of Galilee region, from Capernaum, from Nazareth, from his home territory, he does not go around Samaria, which many Jews would do, and make it a long journey. He goes directly through Samaria to the south, the quickest way to get to Jerusalem. Why would you go around Samaria? Well, because it's full of Samaritans. We think of good Samaritans because Jesus told a story about a good Samaritan. But in Jesus' day, the Samaritans were not considered to be good by the people with, with whom Jesus grew up. The Samaritans were people who had, uh, had intermarried a great deal, Jews who had intermarried a great deal with, uh, with the pagans who lived in that area with other tribes, other cultures, other faiths. And they actually, they, they had a version of Judaism that competed in some sense with the version of Judaism that was down in Jerusalem in the capital city. And so there was a lot of bad blood between the Samaritans and, and the Jews. But Jesus went straight through Samaria. And while he's going through Samaria, full of all of these people that, that a, a fine, upstanding, pure Jew from Jerusalem would never associate with, he encounters not just Samaritans, but 10 lepers. Samaritans who have leprosy. 
Leprosy, we understand, is a terrible disease. It's a skin disease. It can lead to all sorts of things. Look it up sometime and see what the, the, the medical results are, the terrible things that people suffer with leprosy. In Jesus' day, if you got leprosy, you were considered to be one of the worst among sinners because it was such a terrible disease. And clearly, you had done something to deserve this disease. God had inflicted this disease on you. So not only does Jesus encounter Samaritans, people who, because of the prejudice of the time, were considered to be outside of God's blessing. God certainly couldn't love Samaritans. And a Samaritan leper, even more so. But what does Jesus do? They come to him and say, Lord, heal us. They've heard about Jesus. Maybe they've known something about Jesus. And he simply says to them, go to the priest and show yourself to him. And on their way, they are healed. Why did Jesus send them to the priest? Well, well, because people believed that leprosy was the result of someone's sin, if, if, and it usually was not the case, but if you recovered from your leprosy, if you were healed of your leprosy, you could go back to the priest and say, you could go back to the priest and say, see, sorry, I'm healed, I'm recovered. And the priest could say, okay, you're obviously, you're in God's grace again. You're in God's favor again. You can come back and join the community of faith. You can be part of the community of faith. Not only were lepers kept away from everybody else because the disease was so incredibly contagious, but people were almost more afraid that the sin would be contagious. They didn't want to have a sinner among them. Jesus had already talked about sinners among us, right? We all sin. That doesn't mean we exclude each other. It means we embrace each other and help each other recover. Jesus is doing that now for 10 Samaritan lepers. So they, if they go to the priest and say, see, we've been healed, then they can be restored to the community. And then one of the 10 says, I've been healed. I got to go back and thank Jesus for this. I'm going to give him a little Starbucks gift card or something. <laughs> say, thank you, Jesus, right? <laughs> And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Some people look at this as an example of our ingratitude, that only 10% of us uh, actually are filled with gratitude for what God does. And there is maybe that level uh, of, uh, of lesson in this. Uh, but that Samaritan comes back to Jesus and gets even more from Jesus, not just healing. The, the nine who were healed run away immediately, understandably so. But the one comes back and he actually gets more from Jesus. Your faith has made you well, not just physically healed, but emotionally and spiritually healed. You see, the ten lepers believed that God was punishing them. They believed that there was some kind of horrible sin in your life that could not be forgiven. So in a sense, Jesus is saying to that one who comes back, you are forgiven. God loves you. Your leprosy does not separate you from God. How many people do you know who are filled with so much guilt that they refuse to come to church when church is the one place where they should come to be forgiven, to be healed, to be renewed? All of that is going on in this story, and all of that continues to instruct us about what Jesus was doing, about God's true attitude towards us, and about how we're going to live successfully. There's all kinds of leprosy in the church today, in the world today. There are people whose sins we particularly abhor and we decide to keep them out of our fellowship and especially other people's sins. My sins, I'm very comfortable with my sins 
and you're very comfortable with your sins, but I'm not so comfortable with your sins, and if there's a couple of particular ones that I think are especially heinous or unforgivable, then I don't want you in my church. That's the way we are. Jesus has a different way of doing things. He's teaching us. Let's keep on going. Verses 20 to 37. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Then he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go. Do not set off in pursuit. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must endure much suffering and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot left Sodom, it rained fire and sulfur from heaven and destroyed all of them. It will be like that on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, anyone on the housetop who has belongings in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, anyone in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Those who try to make their life secure will lose it but those who lose their life will keep it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding meal together. One will be taken and the other left. Then they asked him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's not one of those passages that people memorize a whole lot. You don't see that at Hobby Lobby in a nice, beautiful frame, you know, to put on your wall. Jesus said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is just not one of those. But remember, you're in an adult Bible study. We're going to look at the words that are there in Scripture. Okay, this is another passage that, that we need some help to get through. Um, it seems that Jesus is talking about what we call the second coming, right? When, when Jesus comes back to earth. He's left earth for a while, and then when God finally gets fed up, even more so the way everything is going to come back and restore it all, cleanse it all, whatever. Okay. A lot of us have lived through several periods of history now where someone has risen up and said, the end is coming on this date. The rapture's coming, you better watch out. If we're sitting there and all of a sudden I disappear, you know that I've gone to heaven. And they say that to you as if they're certain that you're not going to be one of those who's taken up to heaven, right? Okay, I don't mean to make fun of that, but Jesus puts this all in a proper perspective. Let's start with, the, with where Jesus starts. The Pharisees want to know when the kingdom of God is coming, okay? What do they mean by that? What kind of kingdom are they looking for? What are, what are they expecting to happen? Well, the Pharisees were expecting, what most of the Jews expected, was that someday God would give them another great leader like King David had been, who would be strong enough and savvy enough to gather all the people together, to unite them into one force, to throw out the Romans, to create peace and prosperity and happiness in the land forever after. 
That's what they were looking forward to. They were looking for the kind of person who runs for the President of the United States, who promises you that if you elect them, everything will be perfect from there on out. I'm joking, of course. Right? That's what the Pharisees were looking for. And Jesus says, now, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. The kingdom of God is not what you think it is supposed to be. Remember when he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus had a whole different agenda in mind, something that was going to be not just about the Jews, not just about wonderful life here on earth in a prosperous kingdom, but something that was about everybody, something that was about all time, something that went way beyond just living in a land of abundance and peace and plenty. He said, don't even look for that. There are people who are going to say, here's the one, here's the Messiah who's going to lead us, here's what we need to do to achieve this perfect state of well-being in our lives today. He said, that's not going to happen. He said, people are going to say, look, the Son of Man, the, this great leader is going to come. And, and, and we just can't know when that is. Jesus does say, he says, when the Son of Man, the true Son of Man, meaning the human being who is God's agent on earth, when that person returns and, it, and God is going to do something through them, it's going to be unmistakable. You're going to know when Jesus returns. You're not going to know when God is at work. It's going to be like when lightning lights up the whole sky. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to make an appointment with God. It's just going to happen. We have to take this passage in the light of other things that Jesus had to say about the end of time or about the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in one other place, he said, I don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. God will make it happen. He tells a story about, about Noah and about Sodom and Gomorrah and says they were shocked when God appeared in their midst. They were going about the business of their daily lives and all of a sudden, Something happened, a great flood, a great fire that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. What Jesus is saying to us is that we should be looking for the right kind of kingdom in the right kind of place, in the right kind of way. The most telling phrase in all of this comes in, let me look up the verse number again for you. Verse 21, the end of that. For in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, that one you might be able to find for sale at Hobby Lobby in a beautiful plaque, right? The kingdom of God is among you. It's already here. It's already here. What does it look like? He doesn't give us a lot of a description right here, but part of what he's saying is that in him, in what he is doing, what he is teaching, the kingdom of God is here. That is one of the primary messages of the Gospels. Jesus appeared on the scene, Mark tells us, and he started saying to people, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is right here. As we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, one way to summarize it. As we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lots of different ways to describe the presence of the kingdom of God. Don't go looking for it, but always be expecting it. Always be present to it. God has already given you several opportunities today. I'm convinced of it 
to know that he's here and to practice the reality of living within the kingdom. Some of you maybe have already forgiven somebody for something today. Some of you maybe already have, have received some word from God that was healing to you or encouraging to you, or maybe you had an opportunity to give that to someone else. The kingdom is, is present all the time in all ways, but we continue to look for it. We continue to want to, to create it in our own terms, in our own terms. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then there's that interesting phrase. I haven't found a really good explanation of this. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. <laughs> I think what Jesus is saying, this is my explanation of that, that when we look at the reality of a situation and, and, and are truly honest about it, then we will see whether the kingdom of God is present there or not. Okay, let's remember uh, a corpse in ancient Jewish way of thinking in Jesus' day was not something you wanted to hang around. You were considered ritually unclean if you came in contact with a corpse. That's the part of the story of the Good Samaritan is the priest and the Levite weren't sure if the guy was dead or alive and they couldn't touch a corpse. Uh, they even said if your shadow falls on a corpse that you are ritually unclean, right? Death is not good stuff. And we're the same way, frankly. We admire people who have the ability to deal with human remains. And we take human remains and we try to make them look like they're still alive or we try to put them away. We do that, okay? Jesus, a corpse is, is an unclean, dead thing. It's going to start looking terrible. It's going to start smelling even worse. But Jesus is saying if you look at the reality of a person's life or a situation and you see something that doesn't smell right, if you see something that isn't vital and alive and beautiful and good, if you see something that's rotten, something that is dead or almost dying or killing, leading to death, and you see those who are involved with that those who are making that happen, those who are tolerating that, those who are living in that, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where there is life, where there is renewal, where there is beauty, where there is love. Those do not exist. I think that's what he's trying to say. And so let's go to Hobby Lobby and ask them to put this, because it's a great reminder. It's a great reminder. If there's something in your personal life or in the life of our community or in the life of the world that is dead and dying and disgusting. You can think of a lot of examples of those things, right? That's not the kingdom of God. And the vultures, those who hover around that and make that happen are not of the kingdom of God. Let's talk about then where the kingdom of God actually is. Let's continue on, verses 1 to 14 of chapter 18. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. 
For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. He said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Two more stories that tell us about the nature of our relationship with God, what it is and what it is meant to be. First one's about prayer, right? An unjust judge, an unrighteous judge, someone who cares nothing about justice, actually, will ultimately, finally give justice just to get somebody off of his back. That happens in the real world sometimes. But what happens in God's world? God who is good, who is loving, who is the very source of justice, of righteousness, of making the world right. When you ask that God for justice, will you not get it? It is in God where we find the key to making the world right. And God wants to give that to us. If someone who cares nothing about it will eventually give it to you, how much more quickly and easily will the one who cares everything about it give it to you? Jesus is, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching us about prayer in that instance. Lots of people say I, there's no need to pray to God because God doesn't do anything. Terrible things exist in the world. I understand that. But what Jesus is teaching us about is is that our prayer puts us in touch with the God who wants the things that we want, the good things, the just and righteous things. And that as we open ourselves to the power of God in our prayer to change us, that then we can begin to see God's justice present in the world. Most of us think of prayer as trying to get God to do something. And there is an aspect of that in prayer. But an awful lot of prayer, maybe most of prayer, is about getting God to do something in us, right? Getting God to do something in us, to give us strength, to give us courage, to give us wisdom, to make us into the kind of people who make the world right. It isn't God who's messed up the world. It's we who have messed up the world. And so in prayer, we come before God and say, God, make us right so that we can start making the world right. So there's a conversation about prayer. And then Jesus gives an example of prayer. Two people who are praying to God. There's the Pharisee, the one who thinks that he is already right with God. 
God, I do everything that you've told me to do. I tithe, I go to women's Bible study, I tell the preacher what a great guy he is, and I'm better than everybody else. And then there's the sinner who says, I can't even look up to heaven because I have no right to look at God. I'm lost. I can't do anything. I don't deserve God's love. Jesus says that's the person who is going to be exalted, not the one who has already exalted himself. You really have two choices. You can, you can exalt yourself before God. You can say, God, I've done everything right. I'm perfect. I deserve your love. You better give it to me. Or you can say, God, I can't do it. I need you to do it. You can't have it both ways. Either you choose to exalt yourself or you choose to let God exalt you. And who actually has the power to exalt? Who actually has the power to forgive and to heal and renew and to lead? It's not you. It's not me. It's only God. So the first choice is, is a disastrous choice. It will never be right. The second choice is the choice. When we pray to God, we say, God, we need you to heal us and renew us and forgive us and change us and make us into who we are meant to be. Let's keep on going. This is a lot of stuff, isn't it? Verses 15 through 17 in Luke 18. People were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they sternly ordered them not to do it. But Jesus called for them and said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Okay, Jesus has, according to the way Luke has organized these stories, and, and could well be that this story followed immediately on the story of Jesus talking about the two different kind of people praying. The, the, the proud and unrepentant person who thought he was already holy and didn't really need God versus the person who knew that he was completely dependent on God's grace to give him the forgiveness and the life that he needed. And then Jesus says, you know what? Our children can teach us about this. Our children are completely dependent on us. We as children of God are completely dependent on God. Again, I'm glad Terry mentioned her grandson, right? It's fun having grandchildren because you remember what being a parent was all about. And you thank God that you survived the experience long enough to have grandchildren, right? A child, especially a human child, in the animal kingdom, there are some children, if you will, who are born, and they're pretty much independent the moment they pop out a mama. But human children are not that way. Human children will die within a few hours if they are not cared for. And for a long time, sometimes even until they're 40 or 50, they're dependent on mom and dad. They depend on the grace of God, the grace of their parents. It's all about what God gives to us and that we receive from God. Jesus is continuing to teach us about humility and about our dependence on God. But when you are humble, when you are dependent on God, 
and receive from God what God will give you, not what you ask for, not what you want, but what God gives you, then you are strong, then you are powerful, then you are beautiful, then you are good, then you begin to participate in making the world into the thing that it's supposed to be. Does that make sense to you? Think about children. What do children ask you for? Now, again, another story we've learned from our grandkids, because grandmother particularly spoils the grandchildren with all sorts of things that are really not good for them. They want to come and, and stay at grandma's house all the time. But what does a good parent give to their child? Not M&Ms all the time, but good food, right? God gives us what is good for us, not what we want to have necessarily. Okay, let's finish this off. Verses 18 through 30. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He, meaning the certain ruler, replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? He replied, what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Then Peter said, look, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not get back very much more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Okay, we've heard this story a lot which means we need to think about it even more carefully, probably, because it's so easy for misinterpretation uh, to come in, right? The ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what should I do? Jesus says, only God is good. Does that mean that Jesus doesn't know who he is? Yes, Jesus knows who he is, but Jesus is making sure that as the human being that he is, as well as divine being, we understand that it's only God who's good. It's only God who is perfect who is holy, who is righteous, and any goodness and perfection that we are going to have is going to come from God. He says, what am I supposed to do? Jesus said, God's already told you. What don't you understand about the Ten Commandments, right? This is what you're said to do. And then what they haven't gotten to. And when you think about it, you know, as I think about it, the Ten Commandments don't say anything about what you're supposed to do with your money, do they? except in an oblique sort of way. If you make God your God, if, 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 money, if God is God, then money cannot be your God. And this guy is rich, okay? What does it mean to be rich? What it, what it means to be rich is that you have way more than you need. Uh, headlines this morning. Uh, the the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, I think, uh, Scott is her last name now, gave 400, what, what was the first name? Yeah, 
she gave $425 million to Habitat for Humanity because some of the, the incredibly rich people in, in the world have committed to give away some of their wealth at least, or at least half of their wealth. So that means instead of $75 billion, she's, she will eventually end up only with $34 billion. Um, I, I'm really not poking fun of her. I'm lifting that up as an example. Rich means you have more than you need. How much do you need, actually? There's a conversation to be had about that, to be sure. But human beings really need very little. Anything beyond that is rich. God never wants you not to have what you need. God always wants you to understand that anything beyond what you need is wealth. And that is not what gives you life or health or happiness. That's the lesson he was teaching the rich young ruler. Years ago, they used to produce, I'm sure they still do somewhere, I just haven't run across one lately, but, but sociologists will study happiness. And 15 years ago, sociologists discovered that people making a pretty modest income in this country, enough to give them what they needed, were just as happy as the most wealthy among us. Right there, the sociologists are proving what we already know. And then Peter gets into the conversation. Dear Peter says, hey, Jesus, we've done that. We've given up everything. We've left our homes. We've left our livelihoods, blah, 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 blah. And Jesus says, yeah, that's fine. He's not impressed by that. Why? Because when we give up our dependence on all the things that we think we need to have, including our homes, including our families, and we come to God, what we're going to get is even more than we had before. We're going to get life with God, an eternal life with God. Jesus never lets us off the hook. Jesus never lets us think that we can do enough to earn God's love or that we can do enough to impress God. God already loves us, and God gives us the life that we need in him and in him alone. Now, I could go on about that, but God hasn't given me any more time. So, um, let's, uh, to make sure that this, uh, that this video recording is okay, let's go ahead and pray ourselves out of here, and then you guys can come and, and uh, ask me your questions uh, afterwards. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, because the cookies are getting stale and the coffee's getting cold. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your rich and abundant and overflowing word to us your word that created us, your word that gives life to all existence, your word that renews us, your word that we know in Jesus, your word that is our life. We do not live by the things of this world alone. We live by the word of God that comes from your mouth through these scriptures into our ears and hearts. Renew us and strengthen us so that we can keep living and keep following you. In Jesus, we'll pray that. Amen. God bless you all. You've been very patient.